Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today I have the pleasure of speaking again with uh, Dr. Christopher Key Chapel on his very interesting um, recent publication, Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Five Elements of Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. Hello and welcome back, Chris. Thanks. Great to be with you again, Raj. You know, we... Um, uh, I was speaking with uh, uh, Marshall Poe, who is editor-in-chief at New Books Network, about expanding what we do at the podcast in terms of what we cover, sort of thinking of it as new books in Indian religions. We considered even changing the name of the podcast, but we think we'll keep it Hindu studies, but we really do want to include um, uh, sort of Jain, uh, uh, Buddhism in India, um, Sikhism. And so really this is, um, this is the perfect uh, bridge uh, uh, publication to sort of crystallize what we're trying to do with the podcast, both in terms of the the breadth of religions that we're covering, and also in terms of um, looking beyond the publication itself and understanding the field of Hindu studies, what's Ooh. happening out there. So this is really apropos without even really um, uh, planning it. It's it just sort of um, it just sort of happened magically. So that's great. So I'm, yeah, I'm really glad to know, have you on. All of the the traditions that you called out are part of the reason why my job title was created. So Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology. And because my own background, my first meditation was Buddhist. My first yoga class was was Sikh. My first real immersion into Ahimsa connected me as a scholar with Jainism. And of course, all of these amazing traditions arise from India, but that old word Hindu, which used to be an appropriate umbrella word, now has sort of been claimed by people who probably more appropriately should self-identify as Advaita Vedanta or Vaishnava or a specific type of Vaishnava or as Shaiva but in fact have opted to go with this term that is fairly recent in its coinage. I mean, I know that there was a geographic reference to people on the other side of the Indus River going way, way back. But yeah, these are complicated labels and how can we build an inclusive tent in a way that offends no one? And I don't think that's too easy. No, it's 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 not easy, and and honestly, it's um, the term is maddeningly problematic. Uh, I took a course during my undergrad. I think it was a second year course with R.T. Dand, uh, Modern Hinduism, um, during which the the veil was lifted, sort mm. of an understanding what the word Hinduism means, and the ways in which it's a response to the encounter with the British are um, are exemplified in spades in the colonial context in in the West Indies. 
right? And so it just uh, it just a bomb went off in my brain about the the, the about about identity and and who what Hinduism is, who Hindus are. And I have to say, I really, truly am not fully comfortable with the term. I prefer saying to someone, you know, I'm a scholar of Indian religion yeah. more broadly. Yeah. At the same time, uh, lo and behold, I'm hosting new books in Hindu studies. Uh, I'm teaching at the Oxford Center for Hindu um, studies, right? And so um, it's a word that we can't escape, but maybe bringing the consciousness uh of understanding that the word was a catch-all umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, in term, the ways in which one takes, for example, um, uh, one worships a specific deity in um, uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Similarly, I can say I am a Shakta or a Shaiva or a Vaishnava, and that more aptly describes the object of veneration for your impulse. And then there's this, 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 ocean of philosophy of theology of sectarianism uh it's just a catch-all umbrella and 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 really uh, maybe it's ironic uh uh, but also appropriate that um within hindu studies we'll be looking at jainism and buddhism and sikhism because you can't really understand what's happening in indian religion without looking at all these strands and so to, to to maybe to set the stage for the book and also maybe to crystallize for the listeners um, why I'm sort of making this, 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 this maneuver in terms of the podcast. Why don't you explain like, like why would you, why would one want to look at these quote unquote traditions um, in the same book? You know, what, what is it about them that makes them uh, unitable in this way? You know, what, what is, you know, tell us about the rationale of doing so perhaps. Okay. And this is excellent because it's about questions of positionality. And it's about sort of finding one's emplacement. And there's a wonderful Acharya with whom I've studied in India who begins his meditation retreats with unrelenting hours reflection and recitation of the mantra, Koham. And we need to interrogate who we are, where we live, what our background has brought to the table at which we sit, who else has sat at this table, who else do we anticipate joining us at this table. And as I have the benefit now of reflecting back uh, decades on a really lovely, well-supported in so many ways by so many different people, career as a scholar, what I was able to do in this book was to bring to light difference and connectivity. And as Andrew Nicholson has said so eloquently in his book, Unifying Hinduism, These traditions respect the individual, they respect the difference, and they honor the possibility of a transcendent, a place that obliterates all of those distinctions. And this is a good candidate for cognitive dissonance, 
and the philosophies are up to the task. And I had the good benefit of, for many decades now, in the original grappling with Nagarjuna, grappling with the arguments of Vedanta, of Sankhya, of Jainism. And what we see is an unwillingness to go with the simple dvandva. And it's not about the on-off switch. It's about interrogating, okay, we turn on the light, but what is the nature of the darkness? We're in our waking state, but we always have to go to sleep. And rather than privileging one over the other, what these traditions, what these philosophies, what these ways of life do are problematize that core metaphor of sleep and wake and say that even in our waking state, we get glimpses of something beyond and even in our dreaming state, we have things that happen that inform our waking state. One of my favorite immersions, I took an entire semester to do, let's say, subaltern studies before that was even a word. And I took a deep dive into the work of Alwyn Verrier. New York Public Library, one of the few places where his work, which has fortunately been newly reissued was to be found. And I sat there in that reading room and I just became rhapsodic about the stories that he shares about the tribal peoples of India, about what he calls the shamanin, the women who develop their healing powers to the one they are afflicted with Hansen's disease, with leprosy, and yet, despite their suffering in the waking state, the richness of their dream life, to which they return every night to a palace, to a prince, to access knowledge about herbal cures, about counseling skills, and then these become the most important members of the community. These women, despite all their difficulty, become the healers. And it gives voice to that phrase, the wounded healer. And it really signals the complexity at all levels. And going to the first people's wisdom is just so remarkably important. And with India, we have so many different layers so many different communities and at core people desire to hold dignity, what the Gita calls the Swadharma. And this is true in every person, true in every community. So in putting together this book, it was really an honoring of a journey. And as I stated in the introduction, my 20s, I wrote a book about human agency. Why? Because a modern person in her or his 20s is confused, 
feels powerless. And this was further um, emphasized being in graduate school, first job and all of those things. And that book, Carmen and Creativity, found a universal theme that is repeated in Buddhism, repeated as I came to find out in Jainism, repeated throughout the Mahabharata, the Yoga Vasishta, that we must take ownership of our circumstance. We have no other choice. And then in my 30s, I became quite concerned with environmental ethics and due to some rather unexpected and very profoundly moving losses, uh, death, breast cancer, AIDS, um, heart attack of very young people. And due to being deeply moved by a years long study that continues of the Mahabharata, I lifted up the question of how does Ahimsa continue to carry relevance? In the name of that book, Nonviolence to Animals, Earth, and Self in Asian Traditions. And because my studies had begun multivalent with um, Tibetan language, Sanskrit language, since I was a teenager, it was just natural for me to continue to invite everybody to that table that had been set by the wonderful academic experience and by my wonderful ashram experience from the time of teenager years. And then in my 40s, I saw around me, quite literally, across the street, one of the leaders of the Ishkan movement grew up. The house where I now sit and have lived for almost 30 years, they've been completely rehabbed by one of the very early 3HO people. And I remember smiling, not even knowing this until we went into conversation with the person who was selling the house, but she'd grown up here and had tasked her son to come down from Robertson, to come down from the 3HO community and fix grandma and grandpa's house who had passed away. And when we walked in, the whole place was white, just like his turban. And a little sick connection then just to one side, Namarenge quote, okay? Decades and decades chanting every early morning and it sort of comes over. And then on the other side, went to the bat mitzvah, Jewish family and across the street, Puerto Rican Catholic family, and this pluralism, which now has become mainstay throughout America, is a pluralism with which India has lived philosophically. And in terms of the sociology of India, India has always been diverse. So I found a text from the eighth century one of the very early doxographies that lines up, it's by a scholar called Haribhadra Virahanka, rather Haribhadra Yakani Putra. And what he does is he lines up all of the different positions and gives them their due and acknowledges 
all beings seek to thrive, all beings seek to flourish. And this text on pluralism found a happy home uh, for me. And again, that was published, Reconciling Yogas in the 40s. And then when I was in my 50s, I really had been teaching some years, had initiated trainings for yoga teachers, as I talked about in our earlier conversation, and brought forth in yet another version, our translation of the Yoga Sutra, really emphasizing the overlooked or under-regarded vectors within Patanjali that are directly linked to Jainism, that are directly borrowed in from Buddhism. And that brought me, or brings me to the topic of this current book. And Pancha Mahabhuta, okay, the five Pancha great Mahabhuta elements. And everybody in India acknowledges them. Diwali, okay, right in the middle, that celebration of the metaphor and the metonymy of light. Mircea Iliade wrote a very early essay in which he discusses the ubiquity of the image of light, not only within the traditions of India, but throughout human expressions of spirituality and religion. And what I discovered in learning the sadhana taught in the 1990s yoga, the sadhana received by this meditative expanse, this landscape of horizons of people dedicated to meditation, was that we in our ashram had received a training so foundational and so important across all of these traditions that was not really all of that well-known or practiced in other places, at least in the modern world. So over a period of about 20 years, I uncovered and lifted up uh, and through our Tuesday afternoon Sanskrit reading group, which started right here and will resume online soon, uh, what we did for those 20 years was to discover those nuggets of wisdom that call out and lift up the Pancha Mahabhuta Dharanas. And we translated these materials and it came full circle. It came full circle earlier. You mentioned the word Shakta. and the Shakta tradition, really every Puja tradition is grounded in assembling and gathering and inviting in the earth, inviting in the healing and cleansing powers of water, lighting up the illuminating Deepa, the flame, Acknowledging and watching the wind as it circulates. And then creating that 
space, that space of fullness, that space of vastness, that space of quiet. And then as I reflected back, I saw those early studies I did as a teenager in Tantra with my Tibetan teacher, that that ritual is now so beautifully detailed in the works of Professor Staneshwar Timbalsina that this is foundationally very old, very medieval, and enduringly relevant. So a long answer to a good question, and I know I did not answer it properly. So apologies, and looking for the next question to set me on the course that you need. Well, similar to my object of study, um, uh, uh, Puranas and epics, uh, replete with subtales, it's always about the scenic route. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. So a number, um, a number of things came to mind as you were speaking. One tension in the book is looking at these various traditions um, under a rubric that one may say, well, aren't, isn't one superimposing Sankhya philosophy uh, or Sankhya uh, cosmology upon these other traditions. Another tension in the book, which I think is a good tension that is present in, in, in a number of excellent academic books is um, uh, the tension between being uh, a, a stringently scholar work, scholarly work, where one sort of purports to have this objectivity or whether one allows himself participation in humanity and shares your anecdotes and shares and, 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 and is forthcoming with the fact that you cannot enter the water and not get wet, right? <laughs> this is not possible. So those are the two tensions in the book. But before I forget, because I want to allow you to, to expand as you will, um, a couple of things come to mind. So, so this is one of these books that engages both my scholarly self and then my parampara self. Usually it's one or the other. They're like right or left hand where, you know, they can be, they can come together in, a, in an Anjali Mudra perhaps, but you usually grasp with one or grasp with the other. You, you rarely grasp with both hands at the same time. And so there's so much in Parampara wisdom about the Pancha Mahabhutas. It's just, it's, it's just hovering under the surface of everything you're talking about in an academic way that's so brilliant. Um, uh, like a puja, I mean, you just mentioned it. What, what are the essential items for the, for the basic puja? Well, there's naivedium, there's like um, food, uh, there's uh, deepam, the lamp, um, dupam, right? Incense for the wind element. Um, there is, um, what's for gandam? There's a sandalwood paste, typically, right? And there's a pushpam, flowers for the akasha. Like yeah. there's a sense and an element in the very act of offering, the associated in the very act of, of, of these five offerings that are common to so many shrines, whether at home or at the temple. And so it's, it's abundantly clear that one, what one may want to intellectualize as the cosmology of Samkhya is just internalized in the Indian culture. It just, it just, it's internalized to the point that other quote unquote religious traditions equally draw on that. So 
so if someone an interlocutor a purva paksha says to you what are you talking about you're you, what are you trying to put these traditions into into, into sankhya philosophy what might you say to them uh, guilty as charged and <laughs> because i'm a child of the 60s literally i was a child in the 60s we had this cultural revolution if you will the counterculture came up and one of the banners flown during that period was Friedrich Nietzsche. And what Friedrich Nietzsche did is he pulled the rug out from the structures of religious institutions. Carl Jung did the same thing. Carl Jung's formative dream. He grew up in a very strictly Protestant household, his father, a renowned Protestant theologian, and Carl Jung had a dream where God, massive flowing white locks, great robe attire, waddled over to the edifice of the church. And this is slightly scatological, but he pooped on it so hard that the church collapsed. So this breaking down the institutions, and I remember anti-disestablishmentarianism at the time was even, it was the longest word before super whatever that word that Mary Poppins is. But, you know, as a little kid, we learned these words about tearing it down. And in history, we learn about Napoleon and we learn about the horrors of history and we learn to be innately suspicious. So in locating common language that is pre-institutional, I find it very important for the sake of remaining authentic and genuine to find a common ground that's pre-theological. And the late, great Gerald Larson, who wrote the book, Classical Sankhya, put it this way. He said, there is one philosophy that is predisposed and crafted in such a way with an intent that strips everything down to bare essentials and that if you understand these principles then the rest will follow so yes guilty is charged it's not an overlay saying oh all of them are really sankhya but it's an attempt a deconstructive attempt to pull down the edifice that's built up and reveal the dirt that lies underneath. Um, great. So for the record, it's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, <laughs> I believe. But um, it's been some time since I've seen, um, uh, spent quality time so with much. Mary Poppins. Yeah. Oh, you know, th this is what I'm here for. It's, um, uh, and uh, it, um, so, you know, prior to you maybe sharing the, 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 the the structure of the book and talking about sort of the lay of the land. Then we can dive in a little bit, time permitting. 
um, I wanted to share a, 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 an anecdote that I studied with a, an Indian master for about 12 years uh, for the end of his life. And he, uh, he passed in 2017, beginning of 2017. And so I had the good fortune of connecting with his first real pupil, his disciple. He began training this man in the mid-1970s at the beginning of his, his odyssey in the West. And I was sort of the, the caboose of that train, we can say. Yeah, and this, 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 this man who's now um, 70, maybe early 70s, this first primary disciple of, of my teacher, he had other teachers with whom he did. I mean, our teacher was his primary teacher, obviously, but it, it, folks don't understand. I mean, um, it, it's, it's tough for scholars to understand that these boundaries are so artificial. Uh, this student went to receive Shaktipat from a Jain master mm. where he'd have darshans of Hindu deities. He'd have mystical experiences of Indian deities precipitated by a Jain tantrika. Now, where do you put that in intro religion? Honestly, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the sadness and the reflective opportunity of COVID is that I'm wistful because normally I spend uh, the beginning of the monsoon in India and stumble upon every year, it's a surprise. And I could never replicate any of these moments. But yeah, it's remarkable to see the crossover with the Shaktipat experience. It's remarkable that without naming and without really foregrounding surprising things happen. So I'm um, delighted that your teacher has had that experience. I'm not surprised. So um, in terms of, well, let me just clarify what I was saying before, because I think it's people may not have followed because I was kind of glossing over. So the, the five puja offerings relate to the five elements that we'll talk about uh, to which a a chapter is dedicated uh, to each of which a chapter is dedicated in this book, which are related to five senses. Our five senses are related to this uh, cosmology wherein there are five elements. And so people would literally offer um, depending on their traditions They'd sit there and they'd recite, um, you know, something like Prithivyatmani Namaha Gandam Samarpayami, you know, to Prithivy, to the wind in the self. I offer this, 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 this Gandam, this fragrance, and then you offer the sandalwood paste. And then they'll say, Akashatmani Namaha Pushpam Samarpayami, like to the, to the ether in the self, I offer this flower, Vaivyatmani Namaha, to the wind, I offer this incense. To the fire, I offer this lamp. Um, um, uh, and then the same for the, the, uh, the naivedium, naivedium. And so this is what I'm saying, that irrespective of one's tradition, one will make these five-part offerings uh, that 
um, are implicitly tied to the five elements and the five senses. And so um, to learn more about that, why don't you tell us about the chapters of your book? Okay. When we studied this material, it was all through induction. We were inducted without being told. We were given no deductive setup for this experience. And it happened like this. I landed in to the study of Patanjali, Wall of Buffalo, and through that year, practiced, of course, asana and pranayama, but practiced a different yama and niyama every week. And sometimes only one yama, ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, aparigraha. And the idea was you get these words in your head and you know what's being signaled to be nonviolent, to be genuine and authentic, to be honest, to grapple with, and again, college, brahmacharya, and aparigraha. A little bit easier in college because you don't have so much stuff. And then pairing those in all manner of combinations with shaucha, with keeping clean, with santosha, positivity, with tapas, and for us, fasting once a week, which I keep with, being silent once a week, now more periodic, tapas, stoking up this internal fire to bridge into the elemental practices. And then Svadhyaya, to study. And then Ishvara Pranidhana, to dedicate Pranidhana. Oneself, in my case, it's really the silence. And I learned a lot theologically. I was studying with Ishkan during those early months, my freshman year, and learned their theology, learned, and they learned about me, they'll say Hariom. And then as we landed, and as I got a job in a factory and had a rented room, $18 a week on the South Shore, the very working class neighborhoods of Long Island, and we had a Monday night class where our sadhana continued, of course. We did pranayama and asana and yamas and niyamas. And we moved into dharana, the gateway to meditation, perhaps in fleeting moments, the gateway into samadhi. And our assignment was one that required a materiality. 
And if you can wait for just one second. I just recently taught this course online. So in the ready, I have what I later, decades later found is described in detail in the Vasudhimaga, the Buddhist text on meditation. And you're to get an eight inch disc and fill it with soil. So I dutifully found a paper plate and went out and scraped up some dirt, some loam, some soil from the truck farm at the end of my block where I had rented a room near Stony Brook on the North Shore by this time in September. And I sat with this. And our instructions were 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. No theory, no text support. This was our tech. This was our text. And slowly and quietly, remarkable things happen. Very simple, very understated, but a full month. And when I've trained yoga teachers, we do this practice and it becomes so individual. Everybody's experience, everybody's trove of memories, everybody's relationship with earth, with food, with trees, with mountains. Everybody's relationship is distinct. Purusha Vishesha. Every Purusha has its own set of karmic history. Every Purusha, every Jiva, as they say in Jainism, will bring something different to this very same table. And for me, this was absolutely exhilarating. And as I share in the book, my father had trained in forestry at University of Toronto in the 1920s. And we had been brought up as children in the earth. Okay, we would have contests about how many summer weeks could we go without shoes. And we discovered these amazing places where we would ramble beyond the orchards into the forest. And I still so love sharing those memories with my siblings. There were six of us. And we learned about the birds. We learned about the different trees. We learned about the rhythm of the seasons. And this practice was just so rich. And it was such an antidote to all of the agonies that plague the teenage consciousness. And rather than seeing things fixed, things, stuff, okay, shoes, forests, hair color, body, all of these things that have been, oh, an object, 
suddenly a sense of kinship arose. And it takes decades for this wisdom to soak in. And in our teenage years, we are so ensconced in the comparing mind. But to shift from, oh, that's better than me, or, oh, that person is so much whatever, whatever, have that shift through this feeling of kinship into celebration, into the Brahma Vihara known as Murita. Okay, this is a very important building block to make that possible. And then the second month, we did the same with water. And we were instructed to find a clear glass vessel and to place the water in front of us and to do tradicum, to do the fixed gaze upon the water. To use our thoughts, to engage our thoughts, feel the water here, to feel the water down there, to feel the water as we shower, to feel the water as we drink our juice on Sundays as part of our fast, to regard the waters that surround Long Island. We lived not too far from the Nisiquag River and to make pilgrimage to that beautiful wild place, and particularly that place where the Nisiquag River joins Long Island Sound. And I grew up south of the lake that you live north of, and as children, my father had grown up on Georgian Bay, and he loved the water. And we would, as children, just pile up and go up to the lake every season of the year. If a storm was coming in, that was the best time to watch the lightning over Lake Ontario and to see the clouds rolling in, to see the rain pelting down. Water, to name it, to develop intimacy with that element. And some months later, we married with blessings of water. I married as a teenager, so happy. And as Guruma anointed, blessed our union, she poured water over our hands, which were bound up with marigold garlands, and reminded us that we were born of water. And she blessed us, and thank goodness it eventually worked, and sort of encouraged us, you know, bring life forward with these waters of the body. And the metaphor becomes metonymy. This abstraction actually is never an abstraction. The symbol is primary. The expression is secondary. So when we returned from California and brought first one baby and then the second baby, that same water came out of that same Lotel, and that same water reminded us of our responsibility to uphold this water and earth that's been transformed into a human life, 
and to give, to give and support. And it's just so beautiful. And then the fire. The fire of tapas that we would generate with our weekly practice. The fire of tapas that we would generate with our daily practice of asana and pranayama. And that daily kindling of the flame. The daily recognition of the dawn and of the sunset. And when possible, acknowledgement of noontime. The Vedic word, Rita, encapsulates this notion of the rhythm of life. And it was compounded with social analysis. And this is the early 1970s, shortly after the first Earth Day, just a couple of years following. And our teacher, who herself was from a tribal community with origins in Assam. And one of, as I've come to learn, one of the subalterns, she herself deeply inspired by Martin Luther King Jr.'s lifting up of the need for social uplift and change. And she herself, as a child, had participated in demonstrations in her native Calcutta. And she would talk often about finding that fire within and allowing that fire to rage, to purify, and to inspire. And that middle point, okay, earth and water below, fire right in the middle, right at the diaphragm, right in that place of digestive juices. And it's that fire in the belly that lifts us up, causes our speech to come forward with energy. A full month. And it's beginning to get closer and closer to the dead of winter. And those fires required in the furnace, the furnace took on a whole new meaning during this meditation. And then air, the breath of life, Wherever the wind doth blow, wherever the air doth go. One of our colleague students, also Stony Brook graduate, song master, uh, Karen Dukas. She wrote this beautiful tribute to the wind. As we sat, and I reverted back to my Zazen training from when I was 13, and still to this day, I return to the counting of 10 breaths, and then again, the counting of 10 breaths, and noting the slowing of the breath, 
noting the breeze moving the trees outside my rented room on Palfrey Street in Stony Brook and noting, and this is what the Tibetans call the formal period of meditation. And then what happens during the uprising, when you stand up and you move forth into the world, what do you carry forward that surprises you from your meditation? And as I would walk through the forest preserve to locate the bus that ran every seven minutes from the remote parking lot off Stony Brook Road, feel the breath in the body and see, is it still? Are the trees moving? Am I rushing? Where is my breath? Where is the wind? We had an experience called pillar training at the ashram, where those of us who dedicated our lives to carrying forth what we learned with the ashram. And this training echoed our Akash training. We were given no instruction for that month of Akash other than to simply gaze into the open sky. And the Tibetans have really brought this forth as a primary practice, as I've come to learn. Could have done more with that in the book, but um, enough was enough, I think. And what we did for year after year after year after year was early Sunday morning, we would sit upon the ashram floor and gaze out the north-facing windows, sometimes watching, if it were winter, the darkness turn to light, sometimes, if it were the month of June, already sitting with this magnificent oak tree fully illuminated. We would peer between the spaces and the leaves, not unlike what we see here, And there was nothing to say, nothing to do, other than to observe. And we can theorize this, we were replicating a Purusha open conscious state, but no, we weren't given those words to link up because the minute it falls under the naming, the experience is gone. So these practices proved to be so arresting, so transformative, that I couldn't let them go. And then the sixth month, we were given Ganda, Nasa Ganda work with fragrance throughout the day, check in with fragrance at the time of your sadhana. And then the next month we were given mukarasa. We were given experience flavor. Even when there's nothing in your mouth, what's the tone? And then celebrate the food that you eat. And eventually some months later, we opened a restaurant where we became flavor professionals. And to this day, 
I'd love to share the ratatouille that I learned in that kitchen at 40 Merrick Road and share it with my graduate students. For them, it really becomes the best part of the course, but rasa flavor, and then form and color. And I love how the students, when I bring them to India, and at first they're like, what is going on here? And then pretty soon they're off to Fab India and they have graduated from their drab grays into this celebration of color and form and textile. And there's so much beauty, the architecture, the placement, the flowers in pots everywhere. They're just color and form, honoring that deva of the eye, that deva that is color. And then as we reflected for the month upon touch, we gained an intimacy that I like to reflect and share upon which is our body's largest internal organ is the lungs and the body's largest external organ is the skin and they're related. The blessing that can come with touch, the blessing that comes to ourselves as we say namaste. Okay, the one and the other together and then they part again. And then listening that month, listening in the silence, and then slowly moving to the naming of what comes in through the ear. So I have a fountain that I literally light up with electricity every morning and close it down at night, it's my friend. And it gives remembrance of water, it gives remembrance of flavor, and it gives remembrance through its circularity and its circularity it gives remembrance of space and sound. And this took better part of a year. And then eventually I was invited and worked for about six years as we went closer back to Amityville from Stony Brook. And I write about in the book, being Pujari. It was a little bit simpler in some ways than uh, many of the pujas that take hours and hours and hours to perform. But this skill with elemental intimacy, it's foundational to creating the bhava, creating that space of the sacred into which we invite people. And for many years, and this was, I think evocative of the pluralism that informed our own teacher, but for some years, my job as Pujari was to wash the feet of everyone who landed at the top of the stairs, at the entry of the ashram. 
so I got quite familiar with bunions and with um, pedicures and with people's feet. And it was delightful. It was humbling. And that felt connection between the human foot and the earth. I came to really understand the Paducah worship in India, where the gift of a human in service of others, how do we recognize it? How do we remember it? And we touch their feet and we honor the sandals that carried them across the face of the earth. So a little bit, that's all. So um, I wanted to ask you uh, to mention maybe some of the texts that you weave in to each of the elemental meditations. Before we do that, just a tiny bit of unpacking for those of you listening that are probably or, or may or may not be fully connecting the dots. So in Indian wisdom traditions, um, each of the five elements, and yes, there are five, are related to one of the five senses. Uh, one way to think of that is that the element is a medium of the sense. So uh, uh, Gandha smell is related to the earth element. Right? Without earth, there can't be something to smell. Um, um, taste is related to the water element. You know, your tongue is dry, you can't taste. There's no water, there's no taste. Uh, fire, light, sight. You can't see in the dark. Um, air, touch. And this was the reference to the lungs and the skin being the largest organs in the body. Touch is the medium of air. Well, you may say, well, well I learned that, you know, um, that uh, sound travels through air. So what about sound? Uh, the ancient Indians would say, no, 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 no. Sound is just a subsection of, of, of vibration which travels through space, all kinds of, you know, vibration. So we loosely call sound travel through space. So this is just to connect the dots between the meditations on each element followed by the meditations on each sense, you know, that the element is a locus of. Um, tell us a little bit about the textual traditions that you weave into your meditations. Yeah, this was sort of the interesting, surprising thing. I had a professor, um, Professor Ann Feldhaus. She since moved from Fordham to Arizona State, where she's had an illustrious career as a great scholar of all things Maharashtra. And we learned about Vitoba from her. We learned about the great Marathi saints, the Ganeshwari, and so on. And when I shared with her just a little bit, I was fairly private about my yoga when I was in graduate school. She said, oh yeah, those are the Sankhya categories. And she just like sort of dismissed it. And I didn't really go much further. But it reminded me that and we had studied the Sankhikarika for a full year by that time. Uh, and it was the year following that we, that when we had done these um, elemental meditations. So we knew the words were in the Sankhikarika, but the experience was so encompassing that the fact that it was in a book did not really 
mean much to us. And some years go by and I'm giving a visiting lecture seminar at the University of Hawaii Department of Philosophy on the Yoga Vasishta. And I'm in the company of Arindam Chakrabarti, who just finished a two-year term as the Tato Chair of Indic Studies at Stony Brook and will now be returning. He's going first to Ashoka University in Delhi, but a remarkable scholar who was born into a college professor family in Calcutta, left when he was 18 to become part of an ashram in the Himalayas where their primary instruction was in the teachings of the Yoga Vasishta. I'd written my dissertation on the Yoga Vasishta. And he informed me that, and reminded me, I suppose, but I had not really paid attention, that there exist within the Nirvana Prakarna of the Yoga Vasishta, a sequence of chapters that describe the elemental meditations. So I found them and convened our translation group to, and it took us a few years to go through the five chapters that describe Vasishta's apotheosis, okay? His transformation into intimacy with sainthood, with divinity. And I love this sort of wrinkle in the narrative, and I bring it out in the book, was that Vasishta, famous Vedic sage, core figure in so many of the epics. And I remember being in the grand temple in Madurai, the Manakshi temple in Madurai, in the company of a Brahmin who was also a professor of botany at the University of Wisconsin in Parkside. And as we entered, or as I got close to when he finally entered the, the most sacred part of the temple, he announced to the presiding priest that his family gotra is the Vasishta gotra. And it just, it just felt so connected. So when Vasishta, toward the end of the book, having told so many instructive tales to the young Rama to try to dislodge him from his moment of hesitancy. It's like a Bhagavad Gita moment, but experienced by a teenage Ram. He says, okay, now I'm gonna to get to the real stuff and I'm going to tell you why it is that I'm able to speak authoritatively. And he tells, and I was just there a few weeks ago, he tells of walking into a cave above what is now Rishikesh. It's called Vasishta's cave now. And he talks about sitting down in front of the living image of Shiva. And he sits. And he sits, and he sits, and quite frankly, Shiva does nothing. He's in a meditation pralaya. And Vasishta does nothing. 
He doesn't quite use the word bored, but it's clear that this endless silence, something's got to happen. And what happens is Devi walks in. And as Vasishta gazes upon her, illuminated by the Deepa in that cave, she puts down one foot, she puts down the other foot, she lifts one hand, she lifts the other hand, and she begins to dance. And he sees her transform into Saraswati, into Lakshmi, into Uma, into Jaya, into Vijaya, to all different manifestations of the goddess. And then he looks a little bit more closely and he sees the forests sprout from her arms as she dances. And he goes into a reverie and he begins to perform this dharana within his own body. And he dedicates a full chapter to Prithvi Dharana, a full chapter to Jal Dharana, earth, water, a full chapter to Agni, Tejas, Dharana, fire, a full chapter to Vayu. And such beautiful language. And for years, we would sit on Tuesdays and work out the metaphors, work out the rhythm, and land upon a languaging that could convey some of the glorious celebration contained in these shlokas. Then I looked around and I said, okay, she trained in Calcutta in the 1940s, our, our teacher. We know that she had done Patanjali. These elements aren't laid out in Patanjali quite that way. Is there a classical text of yoga tradition? And sure enough, the Garanda Samhita gives pretty much verbatim the instruction for how to do these dharanas. And back in my Buddhist studies days, decades before, I dusted off the Vasudhimaga and discovered how Buddha Gosha taught the elemental meditations, which he expands also into color meditations. And then I went back to the early Buddhist literature and saw, found, the stories from the Pali Canon where the Buddha taught the meditations. And I knew that in Jainism, Racharanga Sutra has this beautiful biocosmology that describes the elements. And I went to my interlocutors, to my gurus, Jain gurus in India and said, where are the elements? And then one year, the light bulb went off and the Gyanarnava of Shubhachandra, a ninth, 10th century text, lays it all out, first Shaiva style, and then it does an inversion and transforms, as was the case, as Jain practiced, interlaced and borrowed in from tantric practice selectively. 
And then an early gift was uh, we brought to Los Angeles as a visiting scholar, O.P. Devaveri, who wrote the very first book on Hinduism and ecology back, the seeds of it were planted in the 1970s. And as a scholar in residence here, we worked jointly with the Prithivi Sukta of the Atarva Veda. So we went all the way back to both the Vedic acknowledgement of the elements from the Rig Veda, but went verse by verse, translating, conversing about. We did a beautiful little book called Earth Verses, where we do our translation. And all of this gets sort of gathered together and honored in this book, and I've probably left out some of the texts, but it was just so delightful to work with Sanskrit students, to work with scholars, um, finding the texts. Each one of them was a gift with figuring out the words and the verb roots and how the grammar fits together. And then making that shift of hermeneutical translation. And part of my training back in comparative literature was translation theory from the oral literature point of view. I studied with an African scholar. Remarkable, remarkable insights into rhythm and rhyme and how to make the oral tradition still speak in a written tradition, which is the challenge of both Africa and India. And then studying with translation theorists uh, from European traditions and learning about the rhythm of Dante's divine comedy and choices made by translators as they moved into the host language, the receiving language of English. And then of course, Antonio de Nicolas, who was born in Spain, matured in India, landed in the United States and brought those varied experiences to his texturing of translation choices, philosophically informed at really a remarkable level. So um, yeah, a lot goes in to creating something that hopefully people can read. And as a student of philosophy from really high school days, wanting to create a hermeneutical circle that always includes positionality of self, but invites in those elders from centuries ago, invites in the wisdom of the professors who have been so generous with their time, and invites in the perspective of the young people new to the study of language, and continuing in reflective practice so that there hopefully can be a glimmer of relevance. Uh, and yeah, just offer that forward. Is the book primarily for scholars or practitioners or both? I'd say both that, um, you know, again, positionality, I've never considered myself other than a person and a person who has been schooled by nature, a person who has been blessed with family, 
birth family and my own family uh, and their wisdom. A person who has been educated by um, gurus from India and a person who has had really the benefit of a holistic philosophy of education at base from day one, uh, really from grade school forward, where what is education is about? What, why do we become educated? We become educated to be our best self for the service of others. So on the one hand, um, those that are more intellectually inclined or diachronically inclined might be looking at the sources and thinking, well, at what point did this group borrow this idea from that group, looking for some sort of, of tracing of, of a historical context? And so, on the other hand, this book is a book... Um, it's called Meditations on the Five Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. The starting point is uh, your own capacity to perceive. Right? The starting point is how you making sense of the world. And so it's so interesting to me that, um, you know, I was very young, maybe around five-ish, when I saw this movie with uh, a later movie that Lucille Ball did. I think she was a homeless woman. And I believe at the end of the movie, she was granted some land of her own, a place to call home. Mm. And one of the last scenes is she scooped up some soil from the earth and she inhaled and she was just, it was rapture for her. She, I love the smell of soil, she says, something along those lines. And that that image just stayed with me. It was something where there was an aha moment that I didn't understand then. Now, someone maybe who uses union terms may call that an archetypal experience and may say, well, this is why the ancient Indians associate the earth element with smell. Um, the elements uh, are considered more than matter, uh, uh, our very psychology uh, is comprised of elemental characteristics. And it's something that's so fascinating that even in English, we have the idea that that's a very fiery person of a fiery temperament. That's a watery person, right? There, there is this, uh, that's an earthy person, salt of the earth kind of person. Oh, that person is airy fairy. <laughs> you know, their feet don't touch the ground. You know, English encodes this, this, this deep wisdom that has nothing to do with uh, theology. It has to do with observing how humans behave. You look at, oh, everywhere. You look at, to be exceptionally nerdy, you look at the, the, the bridge of um, the enterprise, Star Trek, the next generation. You have the counselor that is the watery type. You have the Klingon that is the fiery type. You have the android that is this disembodied sort of air element. It's very elemental. Um, when I was dissertating in 2014, I was essentially a hermit with a, with a desktop. <laughs> and I had an epiphany. Uh, I was looking at the frame of the Devi Mahatmya, which took me to the Markandeya Purana, which took me to the Mahabharata. And, uh, you know, after banging my head against the wall for like five days, uh, five 12 hour days, I realized it's not my job to come up with the grand unified theory of the Mahabharata for my dissertation on the Devi Mahatmya. So, but I had this, this epiphany that um, I hope to, to pursue, hopefully, for the next book, 
Um, uh, I really need to do some lit review on the, on the Mahabharata, but it really strikes me that the Pandavas are um, an analog for the five elements in that Yudhishthira, earth, right? Um, Bhima, Bhima is, is uh, Vayu, he's related to Vayu, air, yes? Yeah. Arjuna, yeah. Yeah. Arjuna, he's water, uh, he's, he's, he's overcome with emotion in the Gita, Ashrapurna, you know, he's, he's, his eyes are brimming with tears, he's sort of this watery kind of uh, fellow. Um, the twins, you could think of them as one each, as uh, ether and fire, but I think they're both ether because I think Karna is the sun, sun is fire. And so I have this, this intuition in the back of my brain that I'd love to flush out one day. Uh, so if, you, if I go away from podcasts for a good six months, you guys will know why. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out. But uh, that's just to say that these insights, it's not such that we only uh, come at knowledge from other people or books. We can come at knowledge and insights from just our own observation of reality. We may package it in different ways. And sort of that's sort of an idea that I wanted to end with to give you a sense perhaps of how to make the most use of living landscapes, meditations on the five elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain yogas. Uh, we've been speaking with the author of Living Landscapes, uh, Dr. Christopher Key Chapel from LMU. Um, who has shared really um, so much with us, his uh, philosophy and education, many a personal anecdote, and um, in, in, in many ways is really emblematic of what this podcast hopes to be in terms of surveying new, rigorous, insightful, innovative scholarship, and exceedingly surveying um, uh, the various strands across uh, the academy um, and in the practicing life of, of Hindus um, that, that need to be brought front and center for us to ever understand this, this unicorn called Hinduism. So thank you very much for sharing with us today. Thank you. It's been a, an honor and my goodness, time flies. So thanks for creating this space and carry on. Thanks for um, talking about space and all the other four elements, but no problem. Until next time, um, uh, stay safe, uh, keep listening, keep reading, and perhaps, perhaps meditate on the five elements.